Amen. Thank you, Joel. Mrs. Laterno, appreciate that. All right, grab your Bibles, Romans chapter number 1, if you'll join me there. Romans chapter number 1, we have a few extra outlines, and so if you'd like an outline, certainly it's not necessary for you to uh, follow along, but if you'd like to use an outline, I encourage you to do so, but if not, just listen, and and, uh, you can follow right along, but Brother Ryan will make his way down the middle aisle. If you would like one, just get his attention. Romans chapter number 1. We've been focusing in on verses 8 and following, and uh, yes, somewhat still of that introductory part of this chapter, but my goodness, it is uh, groundwork laying. It is uh, Paul saying, okay, this is what the gospel is. Here is the gospel. Here's why it's important. And as we've seen in uh, these few verses leading up to where we're at tonight in verses 14 and 15, they're all what we call gospel-inspired. First of all, there's a gospel-inspired thankfulness. There's a gospel inspired prayerful concern for the believers in Rome and the unbelievers, in fact. Then there was, as we've seen, the practical concern and his desire to go and minister to them. And then we've seen... Flowing from that, his desire for fellowship with them, that they both would be encouraged and uplifted and and be able to minister in the gifts that God has afforded every believer to minister one to another. Then we saw this, and this is where we kind of completed last week, was this gospel-inspired desire for fruit. We saw a couple things here, that Paul's ministry was a never-ending quest for spiritual fruit. It wasn't to go on more missionary trips. It wasn't just to write the bulk of the New Testament. It wasn't simply to uh, just to go and preach. No, his desire was to have more fruit. We put it this way, if you remember. We said his ultimate goal was to produce fruit that inevitably brought glory to God, that evidenced God's power, and that spread the name of Christ. That was Paul's ultimate goal, as it should be for every believer. We looked at, and we finished just a couple of weeks ago, that verse in John where he said that you and I are ordained by God. It's His desire that we produce fruit. You are not saved to sit. You are saved to produce fruit. Inside and outside the church, whether it's ministering to fellow believers or whether it's winning souls for the Lord. And we left off asking ourselves, what kind of fruit are we producing? So tonight, that was verse 13. If we look down at it, he he speaks of that fruit over there to have some fruit among you also, even as among the Gentiles. Now, verse 14, and I told you a couple weeks ago, we almost got into it, but I broke it off right there at 8 o'clock. We didn't want to go much further. I said, I love this statement. It's true, I do. Notice what he says in verse number 14. He says, I am debtor. I mean, what a statement. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Understand his, his heartbeat, his view. He's saying this. Uh, we know this well. When someone has done great things for you, when, when someone has given something to you, you can't help but feel greatly indebted to the one behind the giving. The one who blessed you with the gift or did something for you. Paul calls himself here a debtor. Um, He conveys that he is greatly indebted. Who's he greatly indebted to? Well, he's greatly indebted to God. He's greatly indebted to the grace of God. And so such a debt, as we see it obvious, such a debt inspired him now to move, uh, to engulf himself in constant action on behalf of the one who showed him grace. 
So when he says he's a debtor to to, uh, the barbarians, the Greeks, to really everyone, he's saying, listen, I am a debtor to the grace of God. God has done so much for me that I can't help but share that grace with others. Now, let's make sure we understand doctrinally what he's saying. See, his debt of sin, was that what he's a debtor to? No. His debt of sin, like yours and mine, has been paid for. You can't go back and undo that. You can't go back and and pay for that. He doesn't have to pay that back. Christ doesn't expect you and I to pay back our debt of sin. Now listen, when it comes to salvation, every single person makes a choice. As they are presented with the gospel, the reality that there is an eternity, that we will spend an eternity either in heaven or hell, listen carefully, people either choose one of two things. And it's not necessarily heaven or hell. Here's what they choose. Either they will trust Christ to pay the penalty for their sin, or they will trust themselves to pay their penalty. That's it. Those are the choices. Either I'm going to put my faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross to pay my sin debt, or I'm saying this, no, I'll face it myself. And for the rest of eternity, I will pay the price of sin, and it will never be paid up. That's what it comes down to. So Paul is not here saying, hey, I am a debtor to sin. No, Christ has already paid his debt. He has already trusted in Jesus Christ. He has already put his faith and trust in Christ alone, the very Christ whom he persecuted. He could not and he would not have to pay that debt back. But what is he talking about? This is debt. Well, you see it here in his heart and life now. He sensed an obligation. He sensed his own indebtedness to every person around him, wherever he went, to tell them of the miraculous grace of God that had set him free and then likewise could do for them. His obligation. He'd come to embrace, personally embrace. What we as a church had as a theme a couple years ago. You remember? Debt-driven and duty-bound. That's what Paul embraced. He said, I am debt-driven. I have a debt to grace. And how I repay it is by spreading that grace around. He also showed in this verse, verse 14, that he has an understanding of the mind and heart of God Almighty. See, Peter, later on, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter told us that God Almighty is no, get it, catch it, is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of persons. Paul elaborates on it a little bit different. He's both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Paul says, me too. I I likewise have no regard or concern for the barriers of race, for the barriers of nations, for the barriers of intellect, for the barriers of status and position, man-made status and position statement here in verse 14 simply explains and expresses his obligation and responsibility to all mankind to the educated and to the uneducated to the sophisticated and to the unsophisticated to the wise and to the simple to the privileged and to the underprivileged see we often remind ourselves that the ground at the foot of the cross is level What do we mean by that? Well, this statement, I think, sums it up well. You see it there in your outline. The gospel is the great equalizer. 
Like nothing else, it is the great equalizer across all human means of categorizing. It doesn't matter how you're going to categorize and put everybody in their own camp and, and say, well, they're, the, they're this, they're this. It does not matter when it comes to the gospel. And I love this statement. For every person is equally lost without the gospel, and every person can be equally saved by it. It's the great equalizer. Now, isn't it amazing? Hey, isn't it amazing that in our world today, there's a great search for equality? Even now, we talk about, well, we've got to have all this equality. We've got to have a, uh, I, I, there's a city, I just read a title of the article, so I don't know all the details, but there's a city out in California that is experimenting with the same income for everybody. Pure socialism, by the way, if you don't get that, and uh, that, that has been pushed by the left and the liberal left for many, many years, this idea through welfare, through everything else, just this way. We are so, as a culture, we want equality and everything. But here, isn't this amazing? You know the best place to find uh, equality is in the gospel. And that's the very thing that the culture does what? Rejects. I don't have anything to do with it. We we don't want to to hear about God, even though He Himself is the one. God is the one that created everyone, and He was the one before a constitution, before any legal document of any country said it. God said all men are created equal in His eyes. Equal. He loves them all the same. He offers them all the grace of salvation. It's quite ironic that they reject the very God who offers equality. You know, I fear that often, though, we have kind of caught the bug of inequality. I fear that among many of us as independent fundamental Baptists, we can allow, listen carefully, inconsequential outward trappings to produce inward prejudices. You see me. You know me well. What you see is pretty much what you've gotten for 43 years. I don't have tattoos. I don't have earrings. I don't have spiked hair last time I tech, unless it's bed hair, okay? I don't have those things. It's not going to be something that we might find odd, but can I tell you this? We've got to be very careful. Do you witness to somebody who is covered in tattoos, or do we think in our minds and our hearts, they make me uncomfortable? What if they have earrings and their earrings aren't in their ears? I remember witnessing to somebody who had it right through the tongue. Now, honestly, I had to. I said, does that hurt? <laughs> I had to ask them. But, but how do we look at them? Because sometimes you and I can look at somebody, how they're dressed, how they act, where they come from, where, what color of skin. We, we can look at all of these outward trappings, we might call them, and tattoos and earrings and all those things. And we're not talking about if they're right or wrong. What we're talking about is in the situation and context of the gospel. Can I tell you, we must be very careful in our hearts and our minds that we don't pass judgment that those people are unworthy to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We gotta, we've got to make sure subconsciously, well, they're not like me, they're different than I. Can I tell you tonight, I'll tell you, my friend, as pastor of Fostoria Baptist Church, every homosexual in America needs to hear the gospel. And we need to be willing to share that with them. Every sinner of every flavor, of every color, no matter what they look like, the outward trappings cannot produce inward prejudices. We must guard against that. 
believe me, I like clean shaven. I like all the things uh, looking sharp on the... I, I like that. But can I tell you at the same time, we, none of us can judge someone to be unworthy of hearing the gospel. We can't. Because bottom line is, none of us are worthy of the gospel. We're not worthy to hear it. We're not worthy to be indebted to it. We're not worthy to be the recipients of it. Do you know, it appears, and forgive me, my, my studies may be wrong, and I've, I've seen some commentators confirm this, but they may be wrong with me. But do you know who the first person was that Jesus Christ revealed Himself to be the Messiah? It was an adulterous woman who had had many husbands and was living with a man that wasn't her husband. Uh-oh. You realize that? That was the first one that, that I can find in the Gospels that he literally said, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. What a great example from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must be careful to not allow prejudices to affect our witness. From his perspective, now Paul is saying this, now now get the concept, get his mind, uh, get in tune with his heart this evening. From his perspective, he was simply, every time he shared the gospel, every time he told somebody of Jesus Christ, he was discharging a debt that weighed heavily upon his heart and mind. A debt that I fear is often from my own heart and mind and some others. Do we realize that when we declare the gospel, do we clear, tell people of Christ with our words and our living that we too are simply discharging a debt as if we would pay a debt with an installment plan? See, every time I share the gospel, what I'm doing, I'm saying I'm a debtor to grace. Because I've, been, I've tasted, I've been a recipient of God's grace, and man, I know what it is, so I am indebted to everyone else to share it, to give it. Sadly, I'm, I fear that too many of us, too many of us think we do God a huge favor by witnessing for Him, by witnessing for Christ, by participating in outreach ministries, by handing out a track. Paul did not entertain such a thought. To him, it was a debt he was seeking to pay back. And the only way he realized, I can't pay back my sin, I can't even pay back God for the grace that He bestowed upon me, but what I can do is pay it back by paying it forward, (laughs) by giving it to others, by passing it along. By sharing the grace of God. He felt a great obligation. Not as debt of sin, but as indebtedness to the infinite grace of God. For what it had done from him. Him. What it had done? It had taken him from being a very spiritual sinner headed for hell. A very religious sinner headed for hell. And put him into the family of Christ. Made him a child of the king destined for the glories of heaven. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever had a, a bill sneak up on you? Maybe the, the bill didn't arrive in the mail or the email like it was supposed to, and all of a sudden you got a notice that it was past due? Or maybe, maybe even today you're like, oh man, I have this bill due tomorrow, and we gotta, I've got to get it paid. And it is the thing that just, boy, you couldn't think on anything else. You couldn't do anything else. It just sat there, and you knew you've got to get this paid. I can't let that, come, that deadline come and go. I've got to take care of this bill. And it just weighed on you, and it just weighed on you, and it was the thing that just really consumed your thinking in many ways. You ever experienced that? I know I have. 
I've been many a time where I know I've got to get that data. I don't want to pay a late fee. I don't want to pay this. I've got to take care of that. And boy, it has consumed your thinking. For just a small picture, you understand what Paul was saying about himself. See, every time he looked at somebody, could you imagine Paul walking into the temple? Maybe there was a Sadducee, a Pharisee that was standing up and speaking, and all of a sudden Paul didn't see just a Pharisee. You know what he saw? He saw himself many years ago before the grace of God touched his life. And as soon as he saw himself in this Pharisee, he knew, I've got to tell that. What is his future? Where is he going? Where is he going to go if he doesn't hear about Jesus Christ? And so every time he saw somebody, there was an indebtedness that crossed his mind. Immediately it wasn't like, I've done enough for God. You and I might not say that, but sometimes we sit back in our pew, we settle back as Christians, and we think we're doing enough for Christ. That's not Paul. Paul never had that that we perceive in scriptures. He says, what? I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Not as as if I have obtained, but I keep pushing forward. Well, I don't know about you, but I sure do want to have the heart and mind of Paul. I want to look at people and say, wow, they need God's grace. I'm a great debtor to the grace of God, and so therefore I'm a debtor to other people. Can I ask you, have you lost your sense of indebtedness? Have you forgotten that you got a chance at grace? That somewhere God opened His grace to you. He shared with you via a Christian or a track or some way, the Bible, the good news of Jesus Christ, the offer of grace. And you had that chance, so shouldn't everyone else? Shouldn't everyone you work with, every family member, every neighbor, everyone in our community, shouldn't they likewise have the chance? Paul had that attitude. Paul believes so. Look with me. You'll see a practical product of this debt in verse 15. Notice what he says. And man, what a great connecting verse. He says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Man, what a great verse. The first statement you see, the word so, it identifies that this next statement is a product of that debt. He says, I'm a debtor, verse uh, number 14, and then he comes right away in verse 15. So because I am a debtor, I want to preach. I want to be prepared and ready to preach. I am ready to preach. And I like the next statement. He says this, As much as in me is, with all of his energy, his strength, his life, this is what he wants to do. What is it? Well, he wants to be ready. He wants to be prepared. Prepared to what? To preach. To share the good news. Not preach in the sense of a pastor, an evangelist, but preach in the sense of every Christian who tells of the good news of Jesus Christ. Prepared to preach. The best preacher is a prepared preacher. The best witness is a prepared witness. The faithful Christian is a prepared Christian. You can't share a Bible verse if you don't have one memorized. You don't have your Bible with you. Can't share it. You can't share a track if you don't have one in your pocket or your purse. Can't give it out. Not prepared. 
I like what Paul's saying. He says, listen, I, I have a debt. I sense my debt. Therefore, I am prepared. I am ready. We all know historically the idea of the Minutemen and how they were ready at a moment's notice to jump to war in the Revolutionary War and grab their rifle and grab their, uh, their powder and they were ready to go at it. The Minutemen. The reality is that every single one of us ought to be prepared with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Paul saying. He says, listen, I sense the debt. The debt is heavy upon me, the debt of grace. So therefore, I am prepared and I am ready. I have it at hand. Peter stressed the same need. You and I know this well. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And what? Be ready always to give an answer. Of what? That hope. What is that blessed hope? The reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. Be ready to answer someone. Be ready to share. Be ready to explain why you have hope. Can I ask you this evening? It's a very simple point Paul is challenging you and I with. What is it, Christian, that you need to do to be more prepared? What is it? Is it memorized verses? Can I encourage you tonight? Go through your Bible, highlight, grab a track, and just memorize some of the verses that it presents to you and I. Hey, memorize the Bible or mark in your Bible. Make sure you have the Romans road. So in a New Testament and whatever you're going to use to share with somebody the good news, be prepared. Maybe it's you're going to say, hey, I know what I need to do to be prepared. I need to stop by the track rack and load up. I need to get some ammo. I need to stop there and pick up some things and fill my pockets and get it in my car and get it in my purse, whatever the case may be, and be ready to hand it out. What do you need to do to prepare? Maybe say, hey, Pastor Henry, I don't have a clue about soul winning. Well, ignorance is not an excuse. So grab a book. You need a suggestion. Come see me. Take a soul winning class. Get what you need to do what we have a debt to do be debt driven hey friend can i encourage you paul looks at this says listen i sense my debt i know my debt therefore i want to be ready always i want to be prepared to preach for him he wanted to go preach in rome i find it interesting a little revealing about paul's personality he wants to go to one of the biggest places doesn't he uh, and he wants to where's the most people let's go hit it <laughs> let's go find them and let's just go preach share the gospel he was prepared what's going to be for you if you truly sense your debt of grace and you feel the obligation that weighs on all of us you will join paul in striving to be ready and prepared daily to make payments on your debt installments but the consequences of his debt goes further look at verse 16 just the beginning verse 16 great verse we know it right for i am not ashamed of the gospel of christ and what a great statement we'll get to the rest of the verse it's obviously a great one but what would you say here we are we're in verse 16 of paul uh, of romans that paul wrote we have read much of what Paul has written throughout the next, most of the New Testament. We have studied Paul, many of us, whether it be Sunday school or on our own personal devotions. Let me ask you this. Honestly, you answered in your own minds. You need not answer it out loud. Answer me this. What weighed more upon Paul? Was it his debt, the weight of the debt of grace, or was it the fear and trepidation of people? I think we know the answer, don't we? 
For Paul, it was not, hey, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I can't say something. I, what are they going to think of me? Why, why, I just don't know if I can do that. No. You know what weighed heavily on Paul? Was the burden of grace. His indebtedness. You think of it, we can picture it in a scale and you say okay Paul which is the the heaviest in your life which burdens you the most is the fear of people and what they might do to you or is it that you owe God a great debt of grace which is it and what does he say for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for I am not ashamed I'm not fearful I'm not afraid to say I am a Christian and let me tell you what that means Let me tell you of the Savior I know and love that has changed my life and my eternity. He lets it out there. We would put it this way. There is a gospel-inspired boldness. I'm not trying to be hard or harsh tonight, but friend, you and I both know we live in a time and in a culture where we as Christians must be bold. One is rightly stated. The worst thing that good people, excuse me, let me back up. The worst thing about good people is that they are often such cowards. Hmm. One of my favorite quotes in all of history comes from Edmund Burke. I've shared it with you before, but I, I think it's very true. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. True statement. You look throughout the annals of history, and the reality is, that's very true. You want evil to triumph? Sit back and do nothing. And whether that be nationally, whether that be internationally, or whether that be in the life of one person, just sit back and do nothing, and evil will overtake them. The flesh will rule. You and I must do things. You and I must step up. You and I must answer the call. So what keeps good men from doing nothing? Fear, among other things. Trepidation, peer pressure, all of these things. When one ponders the life of Paul, we quickly can arrive at many fears that could have gripped his heart. Think about it. We studied the life of Paul, and yet what are some fears that could have gripped his heart? Well, what are my old colleagues going to think? What happens when I go into the temple and these other Pharisees are there, the guys that I, that I studied under Gamaliel with and those men that I instructed and I come in and I start teaching about this Jesus Christ. What are they going to think about me? What's my family going to think? How are they going to treat me? They're going to even acknowledge me. Will they even own me? Certainly could get greater than that. Could I possibly lose my Roman citizenship or worse, my life? Certainly, Satan came after Paul at times and said, what will be the end of your journey for Christ, Paul? Where is this going to end? This journey that started on the road to Damascus, where will it end for you, Paul? You've got nothing ahead of you but the Colosseum, but hanging on a stake, burned at the stake. Paul, this is all that lies ahead. Hey, Paul, Paul. What if tomorrow is your last? We sometimes see these great heroes of faith and we forget sometimes that they were human like you and I. That when they pillowed their head in prisons, when they, put their, when they attempted to go to sleep, Satan was still there. Satan was still tempting them. Their flesh was weak just as ours is weak at times. 
And Satan preys upon that. And so fears would have certainly been there, and yet he chose not to give in to them. You see, fear could have gripped his heart and mind, paralyzing him, causing him to be silent, dampening any boldness that the gospel would produce in his life. But he chose, and it is always a choice, he chose to not let it happen. You and I know it. We're in a gas station. We're in a grocery store. We're at a, at a restaurant. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, and he, he nods us. He prods us. He, he influences us to say, hey, that person needs the gospel. Hey, hand a track to them. Hey, invite them to church. And in that moment, we all know know it we all sense it we have a choice to make where my fear of speaking up will my fear of a person calls me literally as paul puts it to be ashamed of the gospel or will we say no wait a second i've been given grace and i'm a debt to that grace and so this balance is going to come over here for i am not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ will we join paul There's many opportunities. But are you ashamed of the gospel of God, believer? Not in your heart necessarily, but in your actions. Hey, what about when those around you, maybe it's a complete stranger, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's even a family member, a neighbor, whatever the case may be. What happens when you're around them and they make a statement such as this, all religions are the same, all are good and, and all lead to heaven. How do you respond? Do you cower in faith a little bit? You, or excuse me, in fear? Do you, you say, man, I, I can't speak up. I don't know what to say. I, I don't know how to say it. I, I don't know what explanation to give. I don't know what Bible verse to say. Do we cower in fear? Or do we just, wait a second. But the Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I, I know, and I may not know the Bible verse, but I know from personal experience that Jesus Christ is the only way. And He wants to be your Savior. But do we speak up? When someone says that all gods are the same, are you the first one to speak up? Will you raise your voice? Will you just speak up and say, hey, can I share this with you? This is what the Bible says. There is one true God, and Him alone thou shalt worship. What about when... (laughs) Someone says that no one can know for sure what happens in eternity and after death. Are you a bold witness? Well, Pastor, I'm not someone who likes to speak up. I'm not good in front of people. I'm not. Hey, I understand that. And we all have varying degrees. Some of us have the, the gift of gab. Some of us haven't met a stranger. I understand that. But you know what we all do have is a debt of grace. And what Paul is saying is, it does not matter the size of the fear. Our debt of grace should always outweigh our size of fear. That what I sense, what you sense, ought to move us more so than any fear could ever grip our hearts. But too often I fear we've lost sight of the grace we've been given. The great debt that we owe the grace of God. So it really comes down to this, doesn't it? Which way does your scale tip? Does it tip downward on the side of your debt to God and His grace and thereby it makes you a defender and a proclaimer of the truth? Or does it tip downward on the side of fear and anxiety that passes up those divine appointments that misses the opportunity to give out the life-changing gospel 
basically, simplistically stated, which is greater in your life? You see, I want you to see that the rest of verse 16 uh, speaks of the gospel itself, and it gives us even more to help tip the scale, as it did for Paul, to be a consistent, bold witness. Look at the rest of verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the first thing we see is this simple truth, a boldness with the gospel derived from its supremacy. Its supremacy. Its power. Paul had found the one and only true God, the one true religion. No other God, no other religion can offer man, get this, no other religion can offer man eternal life. Can it offer man a personal relationship with the Creator of all, nor can it give and offer the means of abundant life here on earth. And my friend, if you haven't realized it yet, that truly sets the gospel apart. No other religion offers that. Its supremacy is unmatched. What is given to us in the gospel is truly the power of God. Why is it the power of God? Because my friend, only God can do it. It's the power of God. It is the dynamite. There's the Greek word. We know it well. It's the dynamite that every soul looks for. What is it? The inherent power that sheds purpose and meaning on life for every person. You want one of the great delights of someone coming to the gospel is now they have figured out, they have come to understand that their life has purpose and it has meaning. Wait a minute. I was created for a purpose. And what power there is to the gospel to help someone come to that understanding in Revelation. And Paul says, listen, hey, this gospel that I speak of, this gospel that moves me, that I am indebted to, it is supreme. Hey, Christian, is your gospel supreme? Is it powerful where it can add meaning and purpose to anyone's life, that it can bring real life? I'm sorry, forgive me for being repetitious, but did you catch it? The gospel is the only thing that offers man eternal life, a personal relationship with the creator of all, and even gives you the means of abundant life here on earth. My friend, that is better than any infomercial. And this is Paul just writing in the first chapter of Romans. He said, listen, my friend, what I'm about to embark on, what I'm about to explain to you for the next 16 chapters, it all rests on this simple truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's this. It is supreme. Nothing outside of the truth of the gospel can do that. Give meaning and purpose. It is truly supreme. Listen, my friend, you name the struggle, you name the hurt, you name the sorrow, the situation, the heartbreak, the issue, and I can name the only remedy that's called the gospel. For every person, for anything anybody faces, there's but one remedy, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it alone is supreme. His description is not only that power, but it continues and gets better. You see it, letter B, a boldness with the gospel derived from it, and boy, you've got to love this, it's sufficiency. It's sufficiency. 
Paul states that this power, this supremacy, is unto salvation. Can this gospel save the greatest sinner? Sure it can. We often hear, you know, hey, hey, could, could, could Hitler, could Stalin, could these kind of men have ever been saved? Can I tell you, the gospel is sufficient to save anybody. They'll put their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus Christ can save them. There's not one person ever born for whom the gospel could not atone. It can save anyone, anywhere, anytime. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, or 12, excuse me, says it well. You probably know it. Neither is there salvation in any other. It's the gospel alone that is sufficient. Nothing else, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Listen carefully, friend. Try as you might. There is nothing that can be found. No God, no religion, no philosophy, no self-work, no secret means by which a person can be saved. There is only one thing that is sufficient for salvation for eternity, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ. That He died on the cross of Calvary, that He shed His blood, and that He was buried and He rose again. Such a truth calls you and I to sing and declare Give ear, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb. Ye loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come. And leap, ye lame, for joy. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. My friend, that's the gospel. Yet that sufficiency of the gospel to do just that, it is not just in the fact that it alone can provide what nothing else can, salvation. But its sufficiency is also witness in the fact that it brings salvation to anyone. Paul puts it this way, unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. The term Greek here that Paul uses is a all-encompassing. It is an umbrella term referring to all Gentiles. It is within this very book that Paul very soon in the chapters to come will explain how God presented the Messiah, the gospel, to the Jewish nation. And from there he allowed it to spread to every Gentile nation so that, in, who, that whosoever will can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice there's an interesting parallel in the time to come. We've seen the same pattern occurs, now get this, during the tribulation. You ever thought about it? Salvation is ignited among the Jews first, the prophets and those 144,000, and then they spread out and witness around the world during the time of the tribulation. So we come to understand what Paul is saying here. It is sufficient. How is it sufficient? Well, the gospel can do what nothing else can, and what it does, it can do for anyone. The gospel can do what nothing else can. And what it does, it can do for anyone. There's a sufficiency. Such a powerful and awesome truth produces a great boldness in Paul. But he's not done. He's saying, look, look at the supremacy of the gospel. This has made me a debtor to grace. This has caused me to be prepared to preach. Ah, the sufficiency. I mean, I I can tell a Greek, I can tell a Roman, I can tell a Jew, and it is sufficient to save them. I sure am thankful that you and I can stand up in church, that I can preach the gospel in church, and the gospel is sufficient to save a quote-unquote good person. 
But I'm also so very thankful that I can go into the jail at Carroll and I can preach to the dirtiest of the dirty, the lowest of the low. And my friend, the gospel is sufficient to save them, just as it is anybody. And we must all declare with Paul, when it comes to sinners, I sure am the chief. And if it can save me, it can save you. And yet Paul didn't leave it there. He didn't say it's just the supremacy. It isn't just the sufficiency that makes him bold. I I like this because if this weren't true, we can understand why some aren't bold. But this is true. You see it here. Letter C. Maybe you guessed it already. It's it's to everyone that what? Believeth. What do we call that? Oh, my friend, that is the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. He repeats this many times. He expresses it time and time again in many of his letters. He tells you and I that it is to everyone that what? Believeth. That simply believes. As amazing as the supremacy and the sufficiency of the gospel is, the fact that there is truly nothing simpler than believing that makes it mine ought to daily blow our mind. (laughs) It ought to daily move us to say, wow. Wait a second, let me get this straight. So you're telling me that, that all that I have gained, a, a, a personal relationship with the creator of all, eternal life in heaven, abundant life here on earth, all of this is simply gained not through working for 40 years, not through going and meeting a list of things. It is simply mine by putting my faith and trust in Christ. The simplicity of the good news. That whosoever will. That to everyone that believeth. And such a truth, my friend, for some of you even here, who are now part of the family of God, there was a day when this was such a great stumbling block to even you. Some of you who have a Catholic background, who have been indoctrinated that you must work your way to heaven, that you must pay penance, that that you must work, even Jehovah's Witness and other things. You've had a background where you have been fed heresy, when you've been told doctrine that is not true doctrine, and you have been told that you must work, you must earn, you must merit your way to salvation, to heaven. And my friend, aren't you thankful that you found the truth, that that is not true, that the good news is simple? And all you have to do is believe. Simply believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Choose to turn from a life of emptiness and sin to a life purchased by the blood of Christ in faith. Hey, believer, do you see why Paul was so bold? Because the gospel that he shared, it was 100% different than what he had been preaching with Judaism. Hey, you gotta keep this whole law. You gotta keep all these mitzvahs and all these rabbinical laws, and you've got to do that. And if you do that, then maybe you will earn the grace of God. Oh, you took too many steps on the Sabbath. You may not be going to heaven now. I mean, that's what he comes from. And so he comes to this. He says, wait a second. Look at this. The, the, Jesus Christ, the supremacy of the gospel, the sufficiency it can do in anyone, not just the religious elite, not just the Jews. And then, my friend, the simplicity that all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christian, believer, why you and I too must 
be inspired by the gospel. Why we must be moved by its amazingness, quick to share it in a world desperate for hope and love. You and I truly do have a great debt that we owe to God and grace. But yet it is the greatest privilege to share that debt by sharing the greatest story ever told. If I could just boil it down to two takeaways, and they are simplistic, obviously, in their nature, they would simply be this. Number one, know and daily consider your debt. Know and daily consider your debt. Be like Paul. Join him in saying, I am a debtor. Hey, I am a debtor to Fostorians. I am a, a debtor to Michigander. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying what Paul is. I'm a debt to the grace of God and how I make increments and payments to that grace, how I, I attempt in some form to pay it back is by being a debtor to all those around me who need to hear of the grace of God. And then would you... Say we could do this, be bold in our gospel witness, inspired by the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the simplicity of the gospel we share. I sure am glad that you and I don't have to pull out a rule book when we say you want to trust in Christ. I sure am glad that you and I don't have to say, okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you about 25 years, and at the end of it, you can hope that you're part of the elect. I'm sure I'm glad we don't have to do that. I'm sure thankful that you and I, in just a few minutes, we can share with them the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for them. Hey, I love Romans. I love what Paul says, but it is very convicting. May you and I take it to heart this evening. Brother Cliff, you'll bring me this prayer request. I'd encourage you to pray. Andy Van Bergen and his healing from his surgery there. Pray for Brother Bill James, his healing from his surgery yesterday. And to pray for others who've been out sick. And Lord, just touch and heal there. Pray for the wild game dinner. Pray much for the gospel as it's presented. Pray for all the things coming up uh, as far as... Um, preparations, a lot of things to fall into place. Pray for uh, Jill and Greg as they head up everything with that. And just pray the Lord to give grace and strength throughout all of this. Um, ask you to pray for uh, Ron Darnell. Ron Don Darnell, Roy Anderson shares this. Pray for treatment for cancer for Ron Darnell. Ron Darnell. Ron Darnell. ask you to pray for Don and Royce Myers. This is Debbie Robinson's parents. Pray for salvation. And her mom's not got much time to live and so because of that cancer. And so pray for Don and Royce Myers for salvation. And so very urgent in that case and in that sense for Don and Royce Myers. Uh, Miss Debbie's uh, parents, pray for them that they'd come to put their faith and trust in Christ. Ask you to pray for John McMullen. Linda mentions this. Pray for John McMullen. His kidneys are, are, are doing better, so they're going to do a heart cath on Friday, March 2nd. So pray that they know more because of that and from that, and, and that all would go well with that. So pray for that heart cath coming up Friday, March 2nd for John McMullen. The Lord would undertake there and give wisdom there. Ask you to pray uh, for Randy and Julie Shaver's um, daughter-in-law, Carrie uh, Shaver. And a spot on spinal cord at the bottom of the brain. So they're going to do some more testing if it's cancerous, to see if it's cancerous. And a possible, um, Miss Julia, a possible what? Okay, thank you. Aneurysm. 
That's okay. Excellent. Or it's a possible, so it's either cancerous or a possible aneurysm. So just pray for wisdom there. They're having tests coming up on the, uh, the 22nd. So tomorrow they'll be meeting with a specialist on the 26th. So pray for Carrie Shaver. Got this spot on the spinal cord. They're not sure what it is, cancerous or an aneurysm. Pray for that. And then the test tomorrow, then the follow-up on the 26th. Pray for that. Pray for Tristan uh, Poe. Tristan Poe and Connor Shaver, grandchildren of the Shavers, Randy and Julie, for salvation. Tristan Poe and Connor Shaver uh, for salvation. Um, pray for Donna Armour. Rich Looney mentions this, freedom from her struggles. This is Rich Looney's daughter, Donna Armour. And just pray for uh, freedom from her struggles and certainly the Lord to work in her heart and life there. And uh, pray for that. Um, as, uh, uh, Earl mentions a praise. Broomer came through his surgery well. Then he also mentions a prayer request for Virgil. Virgil Rex. Um, he lost his sons. And so pray for salvation also. Comfort and then salvation for Virgil Rex. Uh, and the loss of his son there. And just pray for salvation for Virgil there. And I ask you to pray for Sally Hartung. A friend of Gary and Wallene, Sally Hartung, in the hospital with flu, low immune system because of taking chemo for the cancer. So continue to pray for Sally Hartung, um, and a friend of Gary and Wallene, in hospital with the flu, low immune system and because she's been taking chemo and things there. Um, ask you to pray for John and Shirley and then their daughters, Brooke and Holly, uh, for salvation. This is a co-worker of Mark Quick. Uh, ironically, they too are in uh, the Bible land. They left a few days after even the yeomans, uh, but they're over there. So pray for salvation. The Lord would work and maybe use some things they get to see. John and Shirley, their daughters Brooke and Holly, all for salvation. And then also for salvation, some others uh, that he mentions here. Pray for Charletta, Charletta, Chris, Chris, Molly, Molly, Norman, Norman, Judy, Judy, Trishel, Trishel, uh, Jeff, Jeff, then Guy and Michelle, Guy and Michelle, then James, James, Robin, Robin, and then Brenda, Brenda. Then ask you to pray for Randy for Christian growth, and he would grow in the Lord. Pray for Randy for growth in the Lord. And ask you to remember these, and obviously we have some on our prayer list there. I encourage you to pray for those at the same time. And so we'll split up in groups of one, two, and three. We'll go to the Lord in prayer. I encourage you to stop by the table, ladies, the conference, sign up for that. Then also the wild game dinner, help there. If you need tickets, we'll get you those too. But appreciate you being here tonight. Let's go this week and let's share the gospel when we have opportunity. Tell people about the good news and all that it is. We'll go up, we'll split up now, groups of one, two, and three. Let's go to prayer together.